Welcome to TGI, Tourism Geography Insights, a podcast of Tourism Geography's journal where we discuss our latest research and developments of our peer-reviewed journal, which explores tourism and tourism-related areas, recreation and leisure studies from a geographic perspective. My name is Joseph Chia. I'm one of the hosts of the Tourism Geographies podcast, as well as one of the editors of the journal Tourism Geographies. Tourism Geographies is a leading journal in tourism studies, and it's an international journal of tourism, space, place and environment. And we try to integrate the two disciplines of tourism and geographies together in all of the work that we publish. Tourism Geographies. He's a leading journal in tourism studies, and it's an international journal of tourism, space, place and environment. And we try to integrate the two disciplines of tourism and geographies together in all of the work that we publish. On today's podcast, I'm interviewing Kieran Shinde from La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. Kieran is one of the leading voices on religious tourism research, and much of his work can be found in some of the best journals and published by some of the best publishers in books as well. Now, for today's uh, podcast episode, I will focus on Kieran's recent paper in Tourism Geographies, The Spatial Practice of Religious Tourism in India, a Destinations Perspective, published in volume 24, issues number four and five. So with that, I say welcome to you, Kieran. Thank you so much uh, for inviting me, Joseph. Wonderful to be here. Fantastic, Kieran. I, I've been following your work for a while, and as I as I said, it's no understatement, it's no overstatement, rather, to say that you're one of the leading voices in religious tourism, and religious tourism has somewhat um, been given a um, a renaissance in recent times, but not only because of the pandemic, but more because of the the wanting for more meaningful travel experiences. So, with that, Kieran, tell me a bit, little bit about yourself. Okay, my. Uh journey relevant to religious tourism uh, is quite a funny one because my primary education qualification is as an architect. So I've come from a very pre-deterministic kind of disciplinary area of architecture and uh, urban planning to much more broader human geography, humanities kind of area because I couldn't find answers to some of the questions that underlie the complexities of religious tourism and sacred spaces. So I had to broaden my perspectives and, and undertake more studies in human geography and human, humanities. So that allows me a much wider sense of what's going on and better perspectives on integrating some of the ideas that come from field into management and planning. So I look at this field from a very geographical perspective, much more contemporary ideas compared to some of the earlier works that were happening in religious tourism or pilgrimage primarily, which were more around cosmic forces, natural forces and all of that. So that's my contemporary inroads into this area of work. So I'm an architect, planner, manager, and then a policy analysis analyst. Well, that's all brilliant. And that sounds like, you know, uh, an almost typical trajectory of someone searching for, for for meaning in things that they do. If you don't mind, Kieran, I'm going to just focus on the paper and draw some of the key um, soundings from your paper. In Kieran's paper, The Spatial Practice of Religious Tourism in India, A Destinations Perspective, Kieran says this, 
He says that religious tourism refers to contemporary patterns of travel to sacred places and has taken many forms owing to different motivations of visitors. Researchers have discussed motivation, activities and behavior of visitors in framing what constitutes religious in religious tourism. But little attention is given to spatial manifestations of religious practice. In this analysis, Kieran draws on four themes that emerge in the work. Firstly, he says that the engagement of religious actors in religious rituals and performances over space defines the boundaries and territories of the sacred and religious. Secondly, he says that the performance area of religious practice has reduced from traditional pilgrimage landscape to specific routes providing access to the main attraction, which is a built structure, either a shrine or a temple. Thirdly, he says that religiousness is also created by non-religious and seemingly profane commercial activities. And fourthly, he says that without the explicit expression of religiousness, there is no opportunity for religious tourism or any other form of tourism. Very interesting um, conversations there, Kieran. Can you give me a background to the study that was published in Tourism Geographies that, um, in which these themes emerged? Yeah. As, as uh, remarked in the beginning, that much of the literature that I was reading when I started working in the field was about motivations and people trying to say whether this person's a pilgrim or a tourist and whether this place is sacred or a profane place. There are all these uh, binary uh, classifications that people were working with. Slowly they evolved into spectrum. And then I said, hang on, we are only talking about people, people, people here. What's happening to the place, which is very important as, as, in geography, because the place really helps us to understand and decipher the kind of complex phenomena going around. So I said, let's look at uh, and then focus on the place. And when you look at the place, India is one of the best places to work with simply because of the multi, multicultural, uh, multi-diversity of uh, religions, faiths, and a whole lot of things, and more than about 5,000, 6,000 sacred sites. So I said, can I really start looking at sacred sites as a basis of analysis and understand religious tourism? what is it that people actually do? And I think that really matters, almost similar to motivation. So motivation brings them there, but what they do in the place also defines what religious tourism is or religious tourism can be. Mm -hmm. So a, a point there for comparison is when you look at some of the earlier work on uh, Christian sites in Europe, for example, Nolan and Nolan's work, uh, or or some of the people who have worked there, you find a lot of them are talking about festivals and, and churches as spectacles, as something to see. Whereas when you look at India, you're talking about millions and millions of people going to sacred sites, which is a major form of tourism, but they're not going to just see, they're actually going to live the religion. So there is an active past to it. And, and that living Act, active action really started to kind of trigger some of these questions. So I said, okay, how do we really then say this place is sacred and that is not sacred? So that question came in. So who defines what is sacred and what is not sacred? And that's generally done through the framework of religion and religious practices and rituals. Then I said, okay, in, in, in uh, Hindu pilgrimages, for example, in India, they would say, if you're going on a pilgrimage, if you don't return, 
and you die on the pilgrimage, you actually attain moksha or the nirvana, which means you go straight to heaven. Now, from there, we have come to a place, times where people take their car out, go to a sacred site and come back in the same day. So how do you really make sense of this? And then when you look at some of these uh, sites, you find a lot more commercial stuff. People are buying souvenirs, they're buying offerings because they don't go to the God empty-handed. They will do something there, right? So all of that really started to engage in this conversation about space and how that is used. And that's where I started to look at uh, Lefebvre's production of space theory. And there I found spatial practice as a way to understand some of these complexities. That's, that's all very um, interesting in terms of how you've come to this, because here, for me, sitting in Japan, what you say uh, resonates because Japan is a, is, a, is a very religious country with two religions, Buddhist and, and Shintoism, quite prominent. And people visit shrines and temples as part of religious practice and rituals, not so much as part of the spectacle of tourism. Which brings me to my next question, Kieran. So then where does tourism fit into all of this? It is quite problematic to say, and for the lack of word and, and lack of terminology, tourism is defined as some uh, uh, an activity that takes place away from your home where a person moves away from the home for at least 24 hours, which means they spend a night somewhere else and then come back to home. Now, that's a very structural utilitarian kind of uh, definition, but we don't have any other equivalent of that. And therefore, it's challenging when, when people go to sacred sites, but unlike pilgrimage, which is very, very much rooted in a traditional understanding of the term or the convention, where you say, I'm going on a pilgrimage, there is a sense of journey involved into it. There is a sense of uh, very strong motivation and preparation. So people have, lots of people have written about how do you prepare for a pilgrimage, right? But in, in cases that we are doing, we are seeing today, at least in India, as I mentioned, probably 80, 70 to 80% of tourism is directed towards sacred sites, pilgrim towns, heritage sites. You can name whichever way, but they all are basically religious sites where people go to perform religion. Now, therefore, for the lack of other concept, we we combine religion and tourism together and say, this is tourism for religious purpose to a religious site, and therefore this is a form of tourism. But if there was no religiousness into it, why would someone go to a place? I mean, there is no beach. There is uh, no typical leisure-oriented uh, attraction. So what is it that attracts? And this is something that I really talk about a lot in my paper, and that's called uh, the sense of place, the spirit of place, which is essentially that place has got something within it that generates a, a very strong spiritual connect to that place. And then it gets translated through a number of different kinds of religious activities, cultural performances, a whole lot of things for people to get a sense, so people can make some sense of that place. Yeah, that's all, it's, it's all really interesting. It makes me think of over the summer, I visited La Sagrada Familia in Barcelona, and this idea of, of religious institutions or places of religious worship as a spectacle was quite obvious. And this idea of spirit of place, which you advance in your paper, I wonder, must one have a sense of this spirituality or a sense of religiosity 
to visit um, places of religion, or do you think they can be simply places like any other attraction that someone visits? Right. There, are, there is something that I've written about uh, this spectrum of what religion offers as tourism attractions. Right? It's attractions for different kinds of people. Again, they would lie somewhere between to the extreme end of spirituality is the pilgrim uh, or the seeker, not even pilgrim. I would call them seeker. And then the other ones I'm calling devotees because they're traveling out of devotion and a faith that some of their problems or existential crisis situations will be solved by divine intervention. So they are all going mainly for that kind of purpose. But there are other people who also go to see the spectacle of it because a lot of religious ceremonies provide the food for the exotic other. You know, it, it, it's a cultural ex extravaganza. There's a grandeur into it. When you look at, um, for example, the big festivals that we have, uh, the big Hindu festivals, and particularly where they are celebrated by the temples themselves, there is a certain grandness because we believe that that's being offered to the gods. So it has to be of the best quality. It has to mean something bigger than the just individual. Therefore, the, the idea of spectacle gets almost inherently intertwined there. So there will be people who will go to see the ceremonies and the festivals because they does not exist in their own religion. So therefore that curiosity exit, the intention to or the motivation to experience another culture is very strong. So that's where it becomes spectacular. So from uh, a very individualized personal connect with the divine, with the God or goddesses or whatever you want to call. So I call that as the divine resource in, 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 to make it uh, comparable across the sites. So it's that divine manifestation or uh, the spirit of place that everyone wants to connect with in some or the other fashion. When it goes through the angle of spirituality or personal seeking, then you see a very different format. But when it comes through a collective consciousness about engaging with the extravagant or the grand celebrations, then you're talking about a very large community spectacle. Mm -hmm. So religion offers all that spectrum where tourism can come in and make use of this, those resources in many different ways. In, in everything you talk, talked about when it comes to the intersection between tourism and religious practice, there's this kind of uncomfortable encounter because it is inevitably for tourism a kind of othering right looking at a at an exotic culture and its religion and and seeing it as um a form of i guess both entertainment as well as enlightenment don't you think yeah uh, definitely there is uh, in fact that is where uh, i think the uh, famous with uh, ternarian tradition comes in if a pilgrim is half a tourist then the tourist is half a pilgrim because uh, you never know what can influence someone in a sacred space, right? The ability to connect changes dramatically from person to person. So somebody who's in inherently aligned with the cosmic forces, uh, for instance, no matter if they're in a temple or a large uh, lake or water body or a big cathedral, they will certainly connect and feel the presence of divine and therefore, the momentarily they will transform and and often if you see the whole spiritual tourism that has come in vogue in the last 20 25 years and has become very popular has come from that 
idea that some of the Westerners who were seeking for truth, life, meaning, all of that, found meditation and yoga as ways to achieve that in the Himalayas. Now, they were not from this the same culture, but they adapted, attained, attuned to some aspects of that culture, practiced it, imbibed it, and became spiritual. They came in as tourists, but became spiritual, right? So same way you find a lot of other stuff also going on. So I think there is a certain amount of fluidity that happens, and that fluidity actually is very closely connected with the religious practice. Mm -hmm. It is connected with who are the actors. So there is a guru, probably there is someone who people consider as the divine force personified, and they want to connect with that. Those are the kind of real big actors who will determine the experience in that space. Darren, in, in your paper towards the end, you, you argue that religious as a prefix is a stronger and an essential concept and touristic aspects in religious tourism, and its spatial dimensions cannot be undermined. When you speak of spatial dimensions, can you explain for listeners what you're actually referring to? So, uh, uh, very, very interesting question, Joseph. This is something that I always get uh, very passionate about because of my training as, as someone from human geography or architectural planning. So if you look at a place just like that, let, let's say if you look at a house, how do you distinguish that house from being a sacred space? It's like any anybody's house. But you look at some of the religious practices when in the same house an altar is created or a small shrine is created by the people, the inhabitants, or and it's something that's sanctified by other people from the same followership, then that same house can get a very different meaning. And that's now the new sacred place, right? And you'll find an enormous amount of literature which talks about this process of construction of a sacred space, right? But then there are other very strong motives. How do you change this between the two houses? One house is sacred one because you start investing in symbols. You know there are certain recognized ways, tangible ways in which people will connect with that. So there'll be flags, there'll be symbols, there'll be artwork, religious artwork, there'll be installation of the deities or, the sh or uh, faces. There, there could be so many different forms. So this is the most elementary way of saying or venerating a certain object or certain part and say, this is sacred. But on the other hand, we we know traditionally a temple has a certain form. So even if there is something inside or not, there are people inside or not, the imagination is that this is sacred, right? You see the cross at some, any place, you know that inherently this is a place which is sacred. So there is this special manifestation of sacred that's really, really important. And once you put that out there, it will attract people. If that cross was not there, or if that big dome was not there, or if the tree did not have a shrine next to it, it would be very unlikely that anybody will visit there, right? So in that sense, the religious as a prefix is really the strongest part in religious tourism without any of those venerated objects, devotional, tangible artifacts, it will not work. And then you have got some, as I said, temples, mosques, churches. These are all symbols of divinity and symbols of sacredness. And, and 
they are the repositories of religious practice. Well, Kieran, I, I know some of the listeners are probably researchers looking to embark on similar research to yours. So I was wondering from a from a practical research perspective, tell us about how you go about collecting data and, and, and trying to make sense of religious tourism in the way that you do. Again, a very uh, interesting point for me to depart from when I actually started working into this. So when I was looking at uh, a lot of tourism studies, again, reference points are either go from religious studies or tourism studies or probably geography studies. I saw when I was looking at tourism studies, for instance, I saw a lot more emphasis on visitor surveys and satisfaction and this and that and the other. And I said, well, if I'm talking about millions and millions of people coming into it, so just to give you the perspective, uh, the place that I did my PhD on Vrindavan, uh, it's a sacred site in North India. Of course, there are a lot, number of other attributes to it, but it, uh, it gets about 12 million people every year. The other site that I worked in is Tirupati, uh, in South India, which gets about close to 21, 22 million a year. Now, no matter how much visitor service I'll do, I will probably come back with one simple thing. This place is sacred and therefore I'm here, right? Now, so I shifted my focus on the people in the place rather than people coming to the place. Of course, I did some visitor surveys and after a while I realized that that probably is going to give me much more saturated answers. But if I really want to unpack the complexities, I need to talk to people inside that place. And therefore, I started doing a lot more qualitative survey, uh, qualitative work, which is participant observation, interviews with major stakeholders. Often I would just go into temples, for uh, example, and sit with the priests for hours together and then just get that kind of sense. Or I would go to a guru and then uh, sit in there uh, as you can, a blessing, uh, seek their blessings and just sit with them. And I would observe a lot of people coming and going and how they are connecting with it. I would talk to people who would be in the temples for a long time. Mm -hmm. So, and then of course, this is all from a religious point of view, but you also need to talk to people who actually do the business, right? So I used to talk to tour operators like taxi drivers, car drivers, uh, hoteliers, uh, people who would provide a restaurant owner, shopkeepers. So we basically get a lot more qualitative qualitative work to make sense of this kind of phenomenon. Because we, I'm, I'm trying to understand phenomena here, right? And the complexities. That I think to, does not really open itself by doing surveys. For that, I need to go deeper. And for deeper conversations, I think interviews are, are very good. And, and you can identify a number of kinds of people in this place. And again, as I said, sacred places are the repositories. So you'll find almost every part of the society reflected there. Mm -hmm. So yes, participant observations, interviews, and often because I'm a kind of come from geography and I understand planning a little bit, I do rely a lot on archival material. So I dig into maps, I dig into uh, you know, uh, archival photographs. I dig into how the sacred place was constructed in the first go. When there was nothing here, what was there? And that's how I start my work. Okay, so that, that brings up a point that I think perhaps is at front of mind for people. As a researcher, you're going into a sacred space. What gives you the right or, or, or the way of access into these spaces? And if you don't have it, how do you negotiate that? 
Mm, that, that's a very, very interesting question. Where are the boundaries drawn, right? Now, often they are drawn. Uh, for me, I was fortunate, I would say one. Second, I realized that my strength was that I am a practicing Hindu. So if I have to study a place which is about Hindu culture, Hindu religion, then it was necessary to tell them that this is what I am and this is who I am and I want to take, learn more about this. So that probably provides an entry point, but that does not necessarily mean that they'll tell me all. So they will still reserve. So that even in my work so far, there are places deep inside. For example, if you go into temples, there are certain places which are not accessible to you, which is not accessible to anyone except for uh, the religiously sanctioned people, right? So people who, who have that as a religious occupation, no one else can do it. And, and we have to respect that boundary. So I respect that boundary. I talk to people outside that boundary. Positionality is, is particularly important in this kind of research, right? Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, that was one of the things that I thought probably researchers should do is, is situate themselves in, in that sense. So a lot of work that we have seen uh, that's coming from Western scholars is, is brilliant, but there would be certain limitations of, of the conceptual frameworks that they would bring in, the, the ideas that they would bring in and trying to find equivalents yes, compared to what their own work is. Right, yes, yes. yes. So, so drawing from that then, what what kind of, uh, if you can say briefly, what kind of theory underpins your work? Because as you as you as you rightly point out, much of the work on this historically has been has been published by researchers in the West, and increasingly now this voice is becoming more diverse, right? Yeah. So, from your from a theoretical standpoint, what influences your work? I think there are a couple of things here. Uh, and then my my peculiar situation is that I've been I'm, I'm an Indian by uh, birth and ethnicity and all of that and been working in India for several years now. But I'm also trained in Western ways of gathering knowledge and producing knowledge. So I I take some of these conceptual uh, practice from the Western because I think if you have to connect with people, we, I need to understand what will they what will what is their way of understanding one, but in the process, I should also not lose the indigenous ways of working in about India. So I would then look at some of our vernacular concepts, particularly written either in Hindi or you know the way we make sense of world in India or sense of religion and culture. And I would use that and this and marry it together. So for example, in this paper, I'm looking at the idea of the sacred complex model, which has been quite widely used uh, in since 1960s, 70s. And then I bring in Lefebvre's work on production of space because the sacred complex model has certain limitations, but production of space provides me a little more understanding into it. So often what I try to do is I try to see which kind of theoretical frameworks will really help me. And then I borrow and I create my own hybrid models. So most much of my work is based on my own indigenous hybrid models of working. And I think to, to so far they've yielded fairly good result because they, they speak to a, a diverse range of audience. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. You've got a foot in both worlds and that gives you um, a, a, a very nuanced perspective. So in view of that, what is the main the main takeaway, if there was one, from this work that you conducted? Uh, in India and was published in this paper. What what do you what would you say that might be? 
that's quite a challenging question just because there's not one thing as i said you know i'm constantly navigating two worlds in this uh, work that i do but one thing that we need to take away from this paper is and i, I open that paper in, in that way is just the sheer volume of religious tourism that we're talking about in india should excite people because much of the work that is done in religious tourism is coming from sites which are yeah great sites but in in number terms they're nowhere close except for hajj and and i think that's where the big parallels are that regardless of what religion you come from but if it's an active religious practice religious tourism is much more richer and engages more people more places than if it's for spectacle so we have to use very different perspectives to understand these complexities so the volume sheer volume could be a, a basic way to even enter this conversation about religious tourism yeah we say religious tourism as an industry <laughs> but that's for another conversation as we get towards the end of the podcast i wonder if you can give us some insight into what work you're doing that um, readers might look forward to on the horizon oh, that's a good good question uh, teasers na well uh, there, there are not much teasers but there are a couple of very uh, interesting works that we are doing the book that is uh, now uh, that we are working together joseph uh, research agenda for religious tourism i think that almost uh, for me that's a very very big step forward given i started working in this field 20 years ago almost exactly 20 years ago 20, 2002 at that time there were very little reference points for religious tourism in the last 15 odd years we have seen some phenomenal work coming out from all different parts of the world and then people are really recognizing that this is a, a, a field of study there's there's a lot that's going on here and that lot could lot could be studied so we are taking a stock of what the uh, literature has been produced in the last 20 years and uh, setting up the research agenda for the next phase of religious tourism uh, studies so that's a super exciting work uh, and i look forward to working with you on that uh, we've got some excellent papers coming in i'm expanding this work that we just discussed which is on six sites that i worked in india the idea behind these six sites was six sites and to my mind this is probably the only study which talks of that scale of comparing six sites at the same time we've okay seen one or two sites probably at the most three sites compared and collectively used to discuss something in this paper i did six my next phase involves 10 sites which gives a lot more uh, richness to the spectrum of religious tourism as we can sp- uh, speak about so i think the reader should look forward to some really fascinating work at least to me that's fascinating because i just completed the field work a couple of months ago and there's some really interesting findings coming through that work fantastic karen well clearly what 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 you're describing is more than just academic research it's a labor of love it's part of your faith it's part of who you are and you know very often researchers ask themselves you know how do i find something that really really interests me and resonates with me and it looks like you found it So with that said I want to draw your attention listeners to Kiran's paper The Spatial Practice of Religious Tourism in India A Destinations Perspective published in 2022 in Tourism Geographies 
Any final comments before we say, before we um, uh, say farewell, Kiran? Not really, except that please do read uh, the paper. That's really important. And then uh, you will find that some of the parts will in some way connect with you because there is so much of uh, diversity of experiences that religions offer. And, and all across religion, I remember uh, just to give you how it works, the first paper that I published in 2003 was in the, uh, is in a conference proceedings uh, on religious tourism. I think it was one of the first earliest things. And then in 2009 or 10, I find someone writing about it. And when I was doing the literature review for this paper, I saw that paper and this that said, oh, Kiran Shinde talks about this kind of a model. And I said, my God, I didn't even realize that, you know, some of these ideas could be so generic that they can be transferred. And they were talking about examples in Greece and, and they were doing some studies in Greece and they were using the conceptual methods that I had developed. It shows that the ideas stand the test of time. So with that said, Kieran, I really thank you for your time and thank you for sharing your uh, generously sharing your insights with listeners. Once again, we look forward to seeing uh, all of the work that you're doing in uh, in months to come. So thanks, Kieran. Thank you so much.